Welcome back, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. I want to start off this episode by shouting out Anchor for this amazing platform they created. You can download the app on your phone and record on the go. An amazing opportunity to share your thoughts with others, you know, in the convenience of your cell phone, which is amazing now that everybody has a smartphone in their hands. Why not use it to share your thoughts, feelings, ideas with the world? Um, so yeah, shout out to Anchor for being amazing. And let's get this episode started. Good afternoon, everybody. I want to apologize for coming back almost a month later with the continuation of chapter three, but I've had a busy and packed schedule and it has become difficult to make space to record my episodes. But here I am. I am going to continue reading the second part of chapter three, Reflections on a Golden Age from Currency Wars, The Making of the Next Global Crisis by James Rickards. The Classical Gold Standard from 1870 to 1914. Gold has served as an international currency since at least the 6th century BC reign of King Croesus of Lydia in what is modern-day Turkey. More recently, England established a gold-backed paper currency at a fixed exchange rate in 1717, which continued in various forms with periodic wartime suspensions until 1931. These and other monetary regimens may all go by the name gold standard. However, the term does not have a single defined meaning. A gold standard may include everything from the use of actual gold coins to the use of paper money backed by gold in various amounts. Historically, the amount of gold backing for paper money has ranged from 20% up to 100%, and sometimes higher in rare cases where the value of official gold is greater than the money supply. The classical gold standard of 1870 to 1914 has a unique place in the history of gold as money. It was a period of almost no inflation. In fact, a benign deflation prevailed in the more advanced economies as the result of technological innovation that increased productivity and raised living standards without increasing unemployment. The period is best understood as the first age of globalization and it shares many characteristics with the more recent second age of globalization that started in 1989 with the end of the Cold War. The first age of globalization was characterized by technological improvements in communication and transportation so that bankers in New York could speak on the phone to their partners in London and travel time between the two financial hubs could be as short as seven days. These improvements may not have been widespread but they did facilitate global commerce and banking. Bonds issued in Argentina, underwritten in London and purchased in New York, created a defense web of in interconnected assets and debts of a kind quite familiar to bankers today. Behind this international growth and commerce was gold. 
The classical gold standard was not devised at an international conference like its 20th century successors, nor was it imposed top-down by a multilateral organization. It was more like a club that member nations joined voluntarily. Once in the club, those members behaved according to well-understood rules of the game, although there was no written rule book. Not every major nation joined, but many did. And among those who joined, capital accounts were open, free markets force prevailed, government interventions were minimal, and currency exchange rates were stable against one another. Some nations had been on gold standard since well before 1870, including England in 1717 and the Netherlands in 1818. But it was in the period after 1870 that a flood of nations rushed to join them and the gold club took on its distinctive character. These new members included Germany and Japan in 1871, France and Spain in 1876, Austria in 1879, Argentina in 1881, Russia in 1893, and India in 1898. While the United States had been on a de facto gold standard since 1832, when it began minting one troy ounce gold coins worth about $20 at the time, it did not legally adopt a gold standard for the conversion of paper money until the gold, until the gold standard act of 1900, making the United States one of the last major nations to join the classical gold system. Economists are nearly unanimous in pointing out the beneficial economic results of this period. Giulio Gallarotti, the leading theorist and economic historian of the classical gold standard period summarizes this neatly in the anatomy of an international monetary regime. Among that group of nations that eventually gravitated to gold standards in the later third of the 19th century, abnormal capital movements were uncommon, competitive manipulation of exchange rates was rare, international trade showed record growth rates, balance of payments problems were few, a capital mobility was high, Few nations that ever adopted gold standards ever suspended convertibility, and of those that did, the most important returned. Exchange rates stayed within their respective gold points. There were few policy conflicts among nations. Speculation was stabilizing. Adjustment was quick. Liquidity was abundant. Public and private confidence in the international monetary system remained high. Nations experienced long-term price stability at low levels of inflation, long-term long trends in industrial production and income growth were favorable and unemployment remained fairly low. This highly positive assessment by Gallarotti is echoed by a study published by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, which concludes, economic performance in the United States and the United Kingdom was superior under the classical gold standard to that of the subsequent period of managed fiduciary money. The period from 1870 to 1914 was a golden age in terms of non-inflationary growth coupled with increasing wealth and productivity in the industrialized and commodity-producing world. A great part of the attraction of the classical gold standard was its simplicity. While central bank might perform certain functions, no central bank was required. Indeed, 
the United States did not have a central bank during the entire period of the classical gold standard. A country joined the club merely declared its paper currency to be worth a certain amount in gold and then stood ready to buy or sell gold at the price in exchange for currency in any quantity from another member. The process of buying and selling gold near target price in order to maintain that price is known today as an open market operation. It can be performed by a central bank, but that is not strictly necessary. It can just as well be performed by a government operating directly or indirectly through fiscal agents such as banks or dealers. Each authorized dealer requires access to a reasonable supply of gold with the understanding that in a panic more gold could readily be obtained. Although government interventions is involved, it is conducted transparently and can be as stabilizing rather than manipulating. The benefit of this system in an international finance is that when two currencies become anchored to a standard weight of gold, they also become anchored to each other. This type of anchoring does not require facilitation by institutions such as the IMF or the G20. In the classic gold standard period, the world had all the benefits of currency stability and price stability without the cost of multilateral overseers and central bank planning. Another benefit of the classical gold standard was its self-equilibrating nature not only in terms of day-to-day -day open market operations, but also in relation to larger events such as gold mining production swings. Its gold supply increased more quickly than productivity, which happened on occasions such as these spectacular discoveries in South Africa, Australia, and the Yukon between 1886 and 1896. Then the price level of goods would go up temporarily. However, this will lead to increased cost of gold producers that would eventually lower production and reestablish the long-term trend of price stability. Conversely, if economic productivity increased due to the technology, the price level would fall temporarily, which meant the purchasing power of money would go up. This would cause holders of gold jewelry to sell and would increase gold mining efforts leading eventually to increased gold supply and restoration of price stability. In both cases, the temporary supply and demand shocks in gold led to changes in behavior that restore long-term price stability. In international trade, these supply and demand factors equilibrated in the same way. A nation with improving terms of trade, an increasing ratio of export price versus import prices, would begin to run a trade surplus. This surplus in one country would be mirrored by deficits in others whose terms of trade were not as favorable. The deficit nation would settle with the surplus nation in gold. This caused money supplied in the, in the deficit nation to shrink and money supply in the surplus nation to expand. The surplus nation with the expanding money supply experienced inflation while the deficit nation with the decreasing money supply experienced deflation. This inflation and deflation in the trading partners would soon reverse the initial terms of trade. Experts from the original surplus nation would begin to get more expensive, while, while exports from the original def deficit nation would begin to get less expensive. Eventually, the surplus nation would go to trade a, would go to a trade deficit and the deficit nation would go to surplus. Now, gold will start to flow back to the nation that had originally lost it. Economists 
called this the price passive flow mechanism, also the price gold flow mechanism. This rebalancing worked naturally without central bank intervention. It was facilitated by arbitrators who would buy cheap gold in one country and sell it as expensive gold in another country once exchange rates, the time value of money, transportation costs, and bullion refining costs were taken into account. It was done in accordance with the rules of the game, which were all well understood customs and practices based on mutual advantage, common sense, and the, prof and the profits of arbitrage. Not every claim had to be settled in gold immediately. Most international trade was financed by short-term trade bills and letters of credit that were self-liquidating when the imported goods were received by the buyer and resold for cash without any, sold any gold transfers. The gold stock was an anchor or foundation for the overall system rather than the sole medium of exchange. Yet, it was an efficient anchor because it obviated currency hedging and gave merchants the greater certainty as to the ultimate value of the transactions. The classical gold standard epitomized a period of prosperity before the Great War of 1914 to 1918. The subsequent and much maligned gold exchange standard of the 1920s was, in the midst of many, an effort to return to a halcyon pre-war pre age. Whee. However, Efforts in the 1920s to use the pre-war gold price were doomed by a mountain of debt and policy blunders that turned the gold exchange standard into a deflationary juggernaut. The world has not seen the operation of a pure gold standard in international finance since 1914. The creation of the Federal Reserve, 1907 to 1913. The second of the currency war antecedents was the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. The story has, sorry guys, <laughs> that story has antecedents of its own. And for those, and for those, one must look back even further to the Panic of 1907. This panic began amid a failed attempt by several New York banks, including one of its largest, the Knickerbrocker Trust, to corner the copper market. <laughs> Sorry, guys, my eyes are going crisscross. That was us. When Knickerbrocker's involvement in the scheme came to light, a classic run on the bank commenced. If the Knickerbrocker revelations had occurred in calmer markets, they might not have triggered such a panic response. But the market was already nervous and volatile after massive losses caused by the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The failure of the Knickerbrocker Trust was just the beginning of a more general loss of confidence, which led to another stock market crash, even further bank runs, and finally a full-scale liquidity crisis and threat to the stability of the financial system as a whole. This threat was stemmed only by collective action of the leadership of the leading bankers of the day in the form of a private financial rescue organized by J.P. Morgan. In one of the most famous episodes in U.S. financial history, Morgan summoned the financiers to his townhouse in the Moray Hill neighborhood of Manhattan and would not allow them to leave until they had hammered out a rescue plan involving specific financial commitments by each one intended to calm the market. The plan worked, but not before massive financial losses 
and the locations had been sustained. The immediate result of the Panic of 1907 was a determination by the bankers involved in the rescue of the United States needed a central bank. A government-established bank with the stability... <laughs> Sorry, guys. A government-established bank with the ability to issue newly created funds to bail out the private banking system when called upon. The bankers wanted a government-sponsored facility that could lend that could lend them unlimited amounts of cash against a broad range of collateral. The bankers realized that J.P. Morgan would not always be around to provide leadership and some future panic could call for solutions that exceeded even the resources and talents of the great Morgan himself. A central bank to act as an unlimited lender of last resort to private banks was needed before the next panic, before the next panic arose. America had a long history of antipathy to central banks. There had been two efforts at something like, like a central bank in U.S. history prior to 1913. The first of these, the Bank of the United States, was chartered by Congress at the urging of Alexander Hamilton in 1791. But its charter expired in 1811 during the presidency of James Madison, and a bill to recharter the bank failed by a single vote. Five years later, Madison steered the chattering of a second bank of the United States through Congress. But this second charter had a limited life of 20 years and would be up for renewal in 1836. When the time for renewal came, the second bank ran into opposition not only in Congress but from the White House. President Andrew Jackson had based part of his 1832 presidential campaign on a platform of abolishing the bank. After a continuous national debate, which included Jackson pulling all U.S. Treasury deposits out of the Second Bank of the United States and placing them in state charter banks, the rechartering did pass Congress. Jackson vetoed it, and the charter was not renewed. The political opposition to both national banks was based on a general distrust of concentrated financial power and a belief that the, that the issuance of national banknotes contributed to asset bubbles that were inflated away by easy bank credit. From 1836 Given the popular distrust of the ideas of central banking, the bank sponsors, led by representatives of J.P. Morgan, John D. Rockefeller Jr., and Jacob H. Schiff of the Wall Street firm Kuhn, Loeb, and Company, knew that an education campaign to build popular support would need to be conducted. Their political patron, Sen Senator Nelson W. Aldrich, Republican of Rhode Island, who, has head, who was head of the Senate Finance Committee, sponsored legislation in 1908, creating the National Monetary Commission. Over the next several years, the National Monetary Commission was a platform of, for numerous research studies, sponsored events, speeches, and affiliations with prestigious professional associations of, of economists and political scientists, all with a view to promoting the idea of a powerful central bank. In September 1909, President W.H. Taft publicly urged the country to consider supporting a central bank. The same month, 
the Wall Street Journal launched a series of editorials favoring the central bank under the heading, a central bank of issue. By the summer of the following year, the popular and political foundations had been laid and it was now time to move forward a concrete plan for the new bank. What followed was one of the most bizarre episodes in the history of finance. Senator Aldrich was to be primary sponsor of the, of the legislation setting up the bank, but it would have to be drafted in accordance with a plan that satisfied the wishes of New York bankers still reeling from the panic of 1907 and still searching for a lender of last resort to bail them out of the next time a panic arose. A committee of bankers was needed to draft the plan for the central bank. In November 1910, Aldrich convened a meeting to be attended by himself, several Wall Street bankers, and Abram Piat Andrew, the recently appointed Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. The bankers included Paul Warburg of Kuhn, Lub, Frank A. Vanderclip of the Rockefeller Control National City Bank of New York, Charles D. Northen of the Morgan Control First National Bank of New York, and Henry P. Davison, the most senior and powerful partner at J.P. Morgan and Company after Morgan himself. Andrew was a Harvard economist who would act as technical advisor to this carefully balanced group of Morgan and Rockefeller interests. Aldrich instructed his delegation to meet under cover of darkness at an isolated railway sliding in Hoboken, New Jersey, where a private railroad car would be waiting. The men were told to come singly and to avoid reporters at all costs. Once aboard, the train, they, once aboard the train, they used first names only so that reporters could not identify them to friends or reporters once they left the train. One, some of the men adopted codes, code names as an extra layer of security. After traveling for two days, they arrived in Brunswick, Brunswick, Georgia, along the Atlantic coast about halfway between Savannah and Jacksonville, Florida. From there, they took a lunch to Jekyll Island and checked into the exclusive Jekyll Island Club, partly owned by J.P. Morgan. The group worked for over a week to hammer out the Aldrich Bill, which would become the blueprint of the Federal Reserve System. It still took over three years to pass the Federal Reserve Act, the formal name given to the Aldrich Bill based on the Jekyll Island plan. The Federal Reserve Act finally passed with large majorities on December 23, 1913, and went into effect in November 1914. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 contained many features promoted by Aldrich and Weiberg, designed to overcome traditional objections to a U.S. central bank. The new entity would not be called a central bank, but rather the Federal Reserve System. It would not be a single entity, but rather a collection of regional reserve banks guided by a Federal Reserve Board, whose members would not be picked by bankers, but rather by the president and subject to Senate confirmation. On the whole, it looked decentralized and under the control of democratic, democratically elected officials. Inside the plan, however, was a de facto mechanism much more in line with the true intent of the Aldrich party of Jekyll Island. Actual monetary policy conducted through open market operations would be dominated by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York since New York was the location of the major banks and dealers with whom the Fed would do business. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York was run by a board of directors and governor, not selected by politicians, but selected by its stockholders, who were dominated by the larger New York banks. The result was a Fed within the Fed, run by the New York banks and amenable 
to their goals, including easy credit or bailouts as needed. Some of these features were changed by subsequent legislation in the 1930s, which centralized power in the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve in Washington, D.C., where it resides today. In more recent years, the board has been dominated not by bankers, but by academic economists and lawyers who ironically seem even more favorable, favorably disposed towards easy money and bailouts than the bankers. Yet, at least through the 1920s, the Fed system was dominated by the New York Fed under the firm hand of its first governor, Benjamin Strong, who ran the bank from 1914 until he died in 1928. Strong was a prodigy of Morgan partner Henry Davison, as well as of J.P. Morgan himself. Thus, the circle of Morgan influence on the new central bank of the United States was complete. History has its echoes. Decades after the Jekyll Island meeting, Frank Vanderlip's National City Bank and Charles Norton's first national bank merged to become the first National City Bank of New York, which later shortened in name to Citibank. In 2008, Citibank was the recipient of the largest bank bailout in history conducted by the U.S. Federal Reserve. The foundation laid, laid by Bander Lip and Norton and their associates on Jekyll Island in 1910 would prove durable enough to bail out their respective banks almost 100 years later exactly as intended. World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, 1914-1919 the last of the antecedents of Currency War I was the sequence of the Great War, the Paris Peace Conference, and the Treaty of Versailles. World War I ended not with surrender, but with an armistice, an agreement to stop fighting. With any armistice, the expectation is that the cessation of hostilities will allow the parties to negotiate a peace treaty. But in some cases, the negotiations break down and fighting resumes. Negotiation of lasting peace was the objective of the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. England and France were well aware that the financial bill for the war was about to be presented. They saw the Paris Peace Conference as an opportunity to impose these adjustments costs on the defeated Germans and Austrians. However, a successful negotiation in Paris was by no means a foregone conclusion. Although the German army and navy were definitely beaten by November 1918, as of the spring of 1919, no peace treaty had been concluded, and it seemed increasingly unlikely that the Allies would be willing or able to resume the war. Therefore, the reparations negotiations were just that, negotiate, negotiations. The Allied ability to dictate terms had withered between November 1918 and March 1919, when the subject was taken up. Now, Germany would have to be prevailed upon to agree to any plan that Allies devised. The size and nature of German reparations were among the most vexing questions facing the Paris Peace Conference. On the one hand, Germany would be asked to cede territory and some industrial capacity. On the other hand, the more Germany gave up, the less able it would be to pay financial reparations that were also being demanded. France had its eye on German gold, which in 1915, had amounted to over 876 metric tons, the fourth largest hoard in the world after the United States, Russia, and France. 
While these reparations are often thought of solely in terms of how much Germany could afford to pay the Allies, the picture was considerably more complicated, as both the winners and the losers were in debt. As Margaret Macmillan writes in her book, Paris, 1919, both Britain and France had loaned vast amounts to Russia, which defaulted in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Other debtors, such as Italy, were unable to repay. Yet Britain owed $4.7 billion to the United States, while France owed $4 billion to the United States and another $3 billion to Britain. Virtually none of the debtor nations could afford to repay. The entire mechanism of credit and trade was frozen. The issue was not just one of German reparations to the Allies, but of a complex web of inner Allied loans. Something was needed to reprime the pump and get credit, commerce and trading moving again. The optimal approach was to have the strongest financial power, the United States, begin the process with new loan and guarantees on top of those already provided. This new liquidity, combined with a free trade area, might have encouraged the growth needed to deal with the debt burdens. Another approach, also which, also with much to recommend it, was to forgive all the debts and start the game over. While it would be difficult for France to forgive Germany, it would be a relief for France to be forgiven by the United States. The, ne the net effect on France would have been positive because the United States was more persistent as a creditor than Germany was reliable as a debtor. In fact, none of these things happened. Instead, the stronger, led by England and France, prevailed upon the weaker, primarily Germany, to pay punitive reparations in cash, in kind, and in gold. Calculation of the reparations and agreement on a mechanism by which reparations would be paid was nearly impossible task. France, Belgium, and England wanted to base reparations on actual war damages, while the United States was more inclined to consider Germany's ability to pay. The German statistics, however, were abysmal, and no reliable calculation of their ability to pay could be made. The assessment of damages was also impossible in the short run. Many areas were barely accessible, let alone amenable to some sort of appraisal of needed reconstruction. The Allies argued as much among themselves as they did with German representatives about whether reparations should be limited to actual damages, which favor France and Belgium, or should include purely financial costs such as pensions and soldier salaries, which would favor England. In the end, no exact amount of reparations was specified in the Treaty of Versailles. This was the result of the technical impossibility of calculating a number and the political impossibility of agreeing to one. Any figure high enough to enjoy domestic approval in England and France might have been too high for the Germans to agree to and vice versa. American admonitions for moderation and practicality were largely ignored. Domestic politics triumphed over international economic needs. Instead of a specific number, experts panels were empowered to continue studying the questions and make specific findings in the years ahead, which would form the basis for actual reparations. This bought time, but the hard issues on reparations were put off only, be only to become entangled during the 1920s with the gold exchange standard and efforts to restart the international monetary system. 
Reparations were like an albatross hung around the neck of the international financial system for the next 15 years. Conclusion. By 1921, the table was set for the first modern currency war. The classic gold standard had acted as an intellectual management, monetary north star that framed a debate over what kind of system was needed in the 1920s to restart international capital flows and world trade. World War I and the Treaty of Versailles introduced a new element, not predominant in the gold standard age, of massive, interlocking, and unpayable sovereign debts, which imposed an insurable insurmountable obstacle to normalize capital flows. The creation of the Federal Reserve System and the role of the New York Fed in particular herald the arrival of the United States on the international monetary scene as the dominant player and not just another participant. The potential for the Fed to reliquify the system through its own money printing efforts was just coming into full view. By the early 1920s, a nostalgic affection for the pre-war classical gold standard, tensions over unpayable reparations, and uncertainty about the money power of the Federal Reserve all conditioned the creation of a new international monetary system in the course of Currency War One. That concludes Chapter 3. Thank you for listening to me stumble. A couple times there. <laughs> I'm going to try to record chapter four this week as well. Um, but thank you guys for tuning in and always being amazing. For those few of you that are always listening, I love you. And thank you for coming by. And I hope you have a great day. I'm sending you guys hugs and kisses. Mwah.